Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? he asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Friends, would you join me with brothers and sisters around the world and with the communion of saints who have gone before us as we confess our Christian faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again for your word. Would you speak through my words this morning to your people? Lord, would you uh, remind us of your provision, your calling, your uh, grace, and your protection in our lives as we look at the life of Moses? Lord, we thank you that you are at work in our lives even when things look difficult. And I pray today that you would encourage and uplift your people by your Holy Spirit as we are reminded that you, Jesus, have borne the price for all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of humanity's evil. And Lord, we can find forgiveness and grace and new life in you. Would you meet us as we open your word together? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week we started a new series on the book of Exodus. Israel is enslaved to the Pharaoh in Egypt. They're calling out for deliverance. And we saw the ordinary courage of the midwives standing up to Pharaoh and his, his evil plan to eradicate the people. This week, we encounter the birth of Moses and a bit of his early life. I want to zoom in on the first couple verses of chapter 2 as we get started. Verses 1 to 3 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Our story zooms in from kind of this large national issue now to a husband and a wife with a newborn son, and we get a picture of kind of uh, a little bit of daily life under this oppressive uh, regime. They simply cannot give up their little boy. Right, we read that Moses is like super cute. You know, he's, he's verse two says he's a fine child, and their hearts are full of love for him. And so they decide the best, the you know, to keep him as best as they can. Um, and I'm sure they were right on him when he is crying and in feeding, and they're trying to keep him quiet as best as possible, so no one will report them. Um, but as he grows. It becomes more and more difficult to keep him a secret, and they don't want him caught. And so, hearts grieving, we get to verse 3. When she could no, uh, hide him no longer, no longer keep him hidden, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the river bank. They don't want him caught, right? And so their hearts, just imagine the scene, right? Their hearts grieving. They know what they have to do. They'll send him down the Nile, but not alone. They're going to put him in a little ark and release him into God's hands. And they choose, like the midwives did in chapter 1, they're choosing to lean into trusting God rather than fearing Pharaoh. I just want to say something about parenting, 
as we look at this passage and, and Moses' parents. You know, parenting today, parent, parenting at any time is hard. Parenting is, is hard. It's very hard. Moms, you bear on your bodies the scars of giving yourself for the life of your child. It leaves a mark. Uh, many of you have had difficult labors. It's not easy. It's called labor for a reason, right? Uh, the care of a newborn is emotionally and mentally just exhausting. It's, it just drains almost everything out of you. If you're able to nurse, you're literally giving your body as food for the, the child. Your body is giving life, is sustaining the baby. In fact, I've, I've thought of it this way. It's almost like a picture of the Lord's supper in the womb. And as babies, we're sustained by the bodies of our mothers. And as Christians, we're sustained by the body of Christ given for us. In fact, Jesus talks about this in, in John six fifty one. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. This idea that our faith in Christ is like being fed by him. It's this, it's this very uh, intimate picture. Almost you know, reminds us of the way a child is, is given life through the mother. And that relationship between parents and children is meant to be life-giving. And I know for some of you, that hasn't been the case. We realize that parenting and parents have also been touched by the fall. Some of us as parents have been found a very difficult time of it. It's meant to be an echo and a picture of the relationship that we can have with God, the one who creates and redeems and sustains us in his life-giving love. Maybe this morning you feel you never had the parenting relationship that you wish you have. I want to encourage you that God, through Jesus, can give you that life-giving, sustaining, fatherly or motherly presence in your life that you never had before. He, he gives this to us through his life-giving love, and we enact that, we celebrate that every time we come to the table. So now Moses' parents have acted in self-giving love, but now they need to really do something practically. They need, to, they need to release him. They can't hold on to him anymore. And so they build their little boat. And I can't help but wonder if they have the story of Moses going on in the back of their minds, their own ancestor, who had to ride out the watery chaos on his own boat. And just as Noah had to entrust his life to God uh, in his boat covered with pitch. Here too, Moses' parents are entrusting Moses to a little ark of his own covered in pitch upon the watery chaos. And so again, the future of God's people is now uh, hallowed out in the little boat afloat across the chaotic waters. This great picture. They entrust their son and their future to God. And they send Moses now to the Nile, again, of the watery chaos, surrounded, you might say, in the ark, like a picture of their own parental love as best as they can. Friends, all of us, if you're a parent, you're a grandparent, you have nieces or nephews perhaps, but any of us who have the care of children, all of us at some point need to do this for our kids. There will come a time, likely when they're a bit older, but for some when they are young, that we need to let go and entrust them to God. We send them out 
with all the knowledge and wisdom and prayer and love that we can muster into the watery chaos, we might say, of mature life, of a secular society, of a new job, of uh, off to college, whatever it might be. But we put them in the ark. We don't send them on their own. We give them to God. They're out of our direct care, perhaps. And some of you today are trusting God to care for your kids or your grandkids or whoever it might be, maybe a friend's children, as they are riding out the waves. You know, I I remember being told, and I think I've told this story before, um, by one of our teachers when I was in school, and he said, you know, the more we open ourselves to love, the more we open ourselves to suffering, the more potential there is for us to get hurt, for us to but potentially grieve because we love this other person. And in that moment, friends, just as Moses' parents are now entrusting their children to God, we as parents or as grandparents or whatever it might be, we also need to learn to lean on the presence and the provision of God. This is an act of parental faith. And I want to draw your, your attention to this that Moses' parents and their faith in God is actually highlighted by the writer of Hebrews in chapter eleven twenty-three. It says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Parents, God sees your care for your kids. He sees the faith you have in him to entrust him with your children. You're doing a good job, moms and dads. Be encouraged. This is no simple task that you've been given. It will be perhaps the most difficult task of your life. But you, like Moses' parents, may need to come to a point, or maybe you're coming to a point, or maybe you've crossed the point but have never really dealt with it, where you need to relinquish the same sort of control you once had and instead trust and entrust your, your, your children to God for their faith and for their future. Uh, Moses' parents do this. It's like a model of us, of our parenting. Now, the story continues. Miriam is waiting, uh, standing at a distance, wondering what's going to happen. We get to verse 5. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women uh, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away, nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When he grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. Moses, uh, his adopted mother, the Egyptian princess, is moved with compassion when she sees Moses and hears him crying. Verse 6 says she's filled with pity. He's drawn out of the water into a new home. I have no idea how 
Pharaoh's daughter swung this by her dad? You know, how did she make this work? I don't know, but she makes it happen. And Moses is spared. And now here's the twist. His parents, Moses' parents, actually obeyed the law. They did uh, put their child in the river, but they did so with the parental protection and love of the little ark. And God provided for them in the midst of that unknown circumstance. God came through. Now here's the second kind of amazing twist is Miriam reveals herself and wisely in the moment offers her mom to be the wet nurse. And so Miriam is another sort of named woman of action in the early chapters here of Exodus. And God uses her to keep this family together as best as they can. So we have Moses now rescued from the waters, cared for by his birth mother, who actually gets paid for it. Think of that, that's awesome. And he's able then to retain something of his Hebrew heritage and identity. Imagine the moment when Moses' mom is summoned by the princess to care for her own child. Just imagine the sense of relief and shock and gratitude. Now Moses is Hebrew, but he's also been adopted now as an Egyptian. He's formally part of the royal household of Pharaoh with all the prestige and learning and status that comes with it. Uh, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, tells us that Moses was active in Pharaoh's house and perhaps even was on a career track to take the throne one day. Uh, that he was probably a general who maybe even led Egypt in victory against Ethiopia. We know also that Egypt was an academic center at the time, so Moses would have been highly educated in math and science and history and geography and grammar and literature and all the rest. And so Moses, uh, riding the waves of his parents' faith, is drawn out of the water in verse 10 in a way no one expected. He's given this wonderful upbringing, and through him, God is preparing him to be the one to draw his son Israel out of the watery chaos of Pharaoh's slavery. So just as Moses is the son being drawn out, God is going to draw out his son Israel. Uh, it's this wonderful sort of foreshadowing of where the story is going. And we see this theme picked up actually later in Jesus' birth. Uh, Jesus, now as the new Moses and as the true Israel, at his birth has to also be drawn out and flee from Bethlehem from the Pharaoh-like decree of King Herod. And actually in this wonderful kind of redemptive reversal, goes to Egypt. Jesus has to flee to Egypt to find safety, right? Because Israel, in some ways, has become like Egypt here. They've lost their way. Now remember, this is, this is not just Moses' backstory, right? This is the story of the people of Israel becoming a nation, becoming God's people. God rescuing them out from under Egypt and then bringing them together as a people around Mount Sinai. And that's what the second half of the book is about. So this is a, it's a redemption story, freedom from Pharaoh, but it's also like a creation story, God birthing his new people. And some wonder in verse two and later when, when, um, Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses, but in verse two, we get this reference of, of Moses, um, being a fine child or being seen as a good 
child. And some wonder if this is actually an echo of the creation account where God looks and declares that his creation is good. And here in this chapter, both Moses' mother and his adopted mother see Moses and call him good. That this is actually like a creation account of the nation of Israel being drawn out of the water just as God draws his creation out of the primordial watery chaos in Genesis 1. So this is fantastic literary parallels. But in all of this, God is is demonstrating his amazing providence and his amazing care for his people. And so the first half of the chapter is is God preserving Moses as an infant. The second half is now God preserving Moses as a young man. So let's jump in now to that second half. Verse 11. Moses is now grown up and he goes out to see his people and he sees their burdens. Look at uh, verse 11 with me. He says, one day when Moses had grown up, so we've done a time jump, right? He went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, one of his people. What's this all about? Well, from what I understand, in the original language, this phrase of looking means uh, to be filled with emotion. It wasn't sort of like Moses went and did a sort of distant, cold kind of clinical analysis, but he saw what was happening. And a compassion or a longing uh, swelled up in Moses' heart. Right? Think about this. Here's Moses with everything in front of him, all sorts of opportunities, all sorts of prestige, all sorts of success, all sorts of kind of career options in front of him. And he looks and sees his afflicted family, his ethnic family, and his heart is moved. And he realizes, I have a choice to make. Who am I going to be? What kind of man am I? That's one of life's most important questions, isn't it? Who am I? Who am I going to be? Who am I going to become? Am I a man who's going to be caught up in my career, in my successes, in my achievements? Or am I going to be a man of compassion who cares for people? Moses acts on his decision, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But before he acts, he makes an important choice about who he's going to become. And actually, Hebrews chapter 11, again, talks about this. Let me read verses 24 and onward to you. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses, who had everything in his life right in front of him, his destiny, you might say, but he says, no, I have a different identity. This is not who I really am. Who I am is among the people of God. 
and his disgrace as Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews puts it. So interestingly, for the sake of Christ, which is so interesting that that's how it's talked about, he considered better than the treasures of Egypt. There's something here where Moses is saying, no, my identity, who I am, what I'm going to spend my life doing is something that matters for eternity, not something that gets me pleasure or money here in the meanwhile. And maybe you're a young person today and you're trying to discern your career path. I want to encourage you, choose the path that God has for you. Choose to be a sort of person that says, what's going to make a difference for eternity? How has God wired me? Where are my passions? We can see here for, for Moses, he has a passion to help his people. He goes about it in a wrong way, as we're about to see. But the passion is correct. What's your passion? What is God calling you to? And can you rest in him and trust in him? Will you choose something that makes a difference for eternity and not just sort of fleeting pleasures for the here and now? So by faith, Moses deliberately decides to identify with the people of Israel rather than with the Egyptians and all their prestige and status and power. Friends, Moses, he knows who he is and he won't allow these distractions to dissuade him from his true identity and his true calling. I think this is so worthy of our attention because we live in a culture that's obsessed with who am I and what do I, what do I believe and who do I connect with? Who's my community? Who are my people, right? And we are also very easily drawn to success and allure and status and money and all of that sort of thing. Moses calls us out of that. He calls us to consider who we will be. Will we succumb to the luxury and the opulence and the self-identity and the self-fulfillment? Or will we ground ourselves and our identity in Jesus Christ and find who we are in him and in the context of the community of the body of Christ? Moses determined who he really was. And I want to ask this morning, do you know who you are? Do you know what God has called you to? Do you have a sense of your own identity and purpose in Jesus? And maybe you don't. I don't want that to be a guilt-ridden thing. I'm not condemning you, but I will say you can find a home and an identity and an identity in Jesus Christ and in the community of the people of God. You can find who you are and where you belong. Do you belong to Christ? Do you belong to the church, to God's people? The Christian has answers to the question, who am I and what am I to do and to whom am I connected? And that answer comes in Jesus and in his body. Here I am known and here I am loved. I'm part of this weird family, (laughs) the community of the people of God with all of our own quirks and issues. But if you don't have that question of identity settled, I pray that God would grant you the grace to get that settled soon that you would know who you are and who you are in Christ. Moses has this blessing. He knows who he is. He knows where he belongs and he acts on it. And unfortunately, he acts on it in a way that completely backfires. Look what happens. Verse 11, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looks this way and sees no one. He looks the other way, sees nobody. He goes and kills the Egyptian and then hides him in the sand. Uh, 
Moses intervenes on behalf of his people. Do you think he, he knows he's fulfilling his future mission? I think he does. I think he has a sense that Moses suspects his future calling. But he does so here wrongly, right? He looks around to make sure no one sees what he's about to do, and then he buries the evidence. And we might think, right, you took out an Egyptian. Awesome, you saved this guy. But it's not the right timing. It's not the right situation. And Moses has a guilty conscience, I think, because he's looking to make sure he doesn't get caught. He knows it's not right. Stephen, in Acts 7, he talks about this moment, and he gives us a really surprising insight. This is Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, 23. It says, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, and he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Now listen to this, verse 25, Acts 7, 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why are you hurting each other? But the men who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Notice how Stephen frames this moment. Moses thought his people would recognize him as their rescuer. Moses has faith in God, and he has some sense of his calling. He knows he's both Hebrew and Egyptian, and that identity conflict will come to a head in his life. And he's filled with emotion over what to do with the slavery of his own people. And so he intervenes, suspecting that they'll see him and understand he will be, he can be their deliverer. He's demonstrating his sympathies. He's choosing a side. And what happens the whole plan backfires. The Hebrews don't celebrate him. They reject him. He's not embraced. Verse 14. Let's go back to Exodus again. Exodus 2, 14. The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. Moses tried to act like a prince. He tried to act like a judge. He tried to act with his own authority. He was trying to be the perfect prince and the perfect judge for them. He's acting with leadership that they don't want. They're not following him. And he knows when it's all come out, he has to run or be discovered. In his series on Exodus, David Guzik makes this great point, and I want to I draw on it this morning. He says, where Moses tried to act with authority and failed, Jesus came out of heaven, was incarnate and walked among us. He identified himself among us as a legitimate prince and a legitimate judge, and people still try and reject him. Jesus is a true prince and a true judge, but our hearts are so often like these Hebrews. Jesus, don't get in the way. Jesus, don't tell me what's right or wrong. Jesus, don't be the Lord. Don't be my Lord. But he invites us to come and to embrace him as our Savior, not to reject him, but to let him be the legitimate ruler and the legitimate judge and friend and God in our lives.
Moses couldn't save Israel from Egypt. Not yet. Not on his own. Not in asserting his authority like an Egyptian. Rather, Moses has to come out of Egypt and live among foreigners if he's ever going to reach them. He's always been an insider. He has to become an outsider himself before he can be used to rescue his people. Moses has the right idea, but he's got the wrong timing. God's plan is different, and it's going to involve 40 more years of waiting. God has a different plan. Sometimes our plan seems very straightforward. In fact, we may even have the right idea, but the timing is off. God's timing is perfect, and it's good. We can trust God's plan. We can trust God's timing. And God's going to use Moses' failure here to shape who he is. I remember never thinking I was going to become a pastor at 24 or whatever I was. I think it was 24. I had no idea of that. I thought maybe down the road. But God's timing was different. God had a plan and a purpose for my life. And he has a plan and a purpose for your life as well. Are you walking in it? Are you walking in it? Where Moses tried to act with justice and with grace, we know Jesus has come to settle the disputes between us and to invite us into new life. He's the true judge and the true prince who lays down his life for us. Finally, we get to verses 15 to 25. Moses in Midian, he's fleeing, he's crushed, he's on the run, his plans have blown up in his face, he probably feels like he's failed. And he comes, verse 15, to a well. Now, if, if, you, if you've read through Genesis, if, if you think for a moment, where have we encountered meetings at wells? You'll, you'll recognize he's repeat, it's repeating the same sort of actions. It's being framed in the same way that both Isaac and Jacob uh, interacted with the women who they would eventually marry, uh, the women who would become their wives. It's this picture of the heir of Israel being identified, not as a slave, but as a Hebrew. And echoing that theme from Genesis, the heir is alive and coming, going forward. It's still happening, and something significant will happen at the meeting at the well. Later in verse 19, he's still called an Egyptian. We see that dual identity issue going on in his life. There's a tension here. He's Egyptian in one sense, but he's also choosing his Hebrew ethnic identity in the other sense. So he's alienated from both the Hebrew people and from his Egyptian household. And it's in that place of brokenness, in the place where he can no longer rely on who he is just by his ethnic identity or by his career and the prestige he's created for himself when he finds himself then in the middle of God's will. Friends, you may be relying on who you are in your heritage to find your identity. You may be relying on what you've done for yourself and amassed for yourself to find who you are. But neither of those will be truly life-giving and sustaining without Jesus. Here we see in Moses both his ethnic identity, his family, and all the pride that could come with who he is and where he comes from is now removed from him. His, his sense of what he's accomplished for himself, his career, his education, that's been removed from him. And now here he is. We might say Moses it was too full of himself for God to use. He had to be brought low. 
And here's Moses now in God's school, dwelling in Midian. This will be his true education. This will be the place of his spiritual formation. It'll be a school of leadership, of life, of marriage, of family, of pastoral care, of learning to shepherd. God is going to teach him how to shepherd sheep so that later he can shepherd people. And here we find the right response. Moses was content to live there. He chooses to be there. He settles down. Verse 21 says, Moses was content to dwell with the man, Ruel, who will become his father-in-law, Jethro. And he ends up marrying and settling down. Moses didn't just skirt through the time in his life where God was training him. He didn't just kind of endure it. No, he resolved to live his life here, to embrace what God was doing. Even when he had tried and failed and his life as he knew it was pulled out from under him, he decided to be content where God had put him and to trust in God's timing. What about you this morning? When your plans fail and fall through, will you trust in God's timing, in God's training? Will you allow God to take the brokenness and to transform it into life? Can you find not just the struggle, but contentment in the changes that life brings? There's still an ache in Moses' soul, right? He says, I'm a sojourner. He names his son Gershom, which sounds like Hebrew for sojourner. He knows he's a stranger. He knows he's now an outcast. He knows now what it's like to be Israel, right? He has to learn to be a stranger in a foreign land. He's now being made to be like the people he will be rescuing. He's never known that. And here he is now in a foreign nation as almost like a refugee with others learning the simplicity of their hospitality and grace and God's patient training, God's patient transformation of his character in a time of life, a season of life that seems so different, so distant from what he imagined. Friends, I encourage you, just as Moses is learning, uh, in this case, to be a simple nobody, to let God shape his life and character, that, that God is crafting him in this in-between phase. Friends, I encourage you to let God craft you in the in-between phase of your life. You may feel you're not quite sure which way it's going. You're wondering what God has for you. Maybe it feels like a wilderness experience to some degree. But I encourage you to let God transform and shape you, to grow you in obedience, to grow you in faith. In some ways, this COVID-19 situation is almost like this. We don't quite know where it's headed. We don't quite know how long it'll last. We're uh, in a situation we've never been this way before, right? But what an opportunity to lean into God, to let him shape our character, to let the issues in our lives realize what's bubbling to the surface as we stay at home and self-isolate and all of these things, right? Am I frustrated with people? Am I full of anger? Am I full of bitterness? Let God work that out in our lives. Let God transform us so we can respond with faithfulness when the call comes. And God knows the cry of our hearts. Verses 23 to 25, the chapter ends with this little moment of God 
hearing the groaning, acknowledging the people in their slavery and waiting for deliverance. And God remembers his covenant, not because they're good, but because he is faithful to it. Friends, we come to God. God shapes us and grows us because of who he is, not because of us, not because of our goodness, not because of our greatness, but God loves you and wants to grow you and to fill you with his life and with his love. That's all because of who he is and not because we've earned it, but because Christ has gone to the cross for us, taken our sin and has come to make us new and alive. You may feel like Moses out in the desert, but God is faithful. You know, Christ went to a worse desert for you. Christ went to the cross. He's faithful to God's covenant. He went and endured the suffering of the cross so that he can bring his grace and his life to you and to me. As we wrap this up, just a few thoughts. God delivered the life of baby Moses and, you know, there was pain there. That wouldn't have been easy for his mom or his dad. God delivered Moses to Israel, but they rejected him. And then God delivered Moses to the wilderness for his training. And there would have been pain involved in that as well. I want to say this, that when God does deliver us, when we, when we allow God to work in our lives, when God is doing something... There may well sometimes be a measure of pain. And I encourage you not to resist that. There was pain along the way here for Moses. And there are times in our own lives where we experience grief, where we experience hardship. We may be wondering about God's timing. But we can know who we are. We can trust that our true identity and our hope and our future are held and found in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to deliver us out of our slavery to sin and invites all of us into a new life with him. And my prayer today is that you stop trying to control as Moses tried to intervene in that poor situation with the Hebrews, but instead learn to embrace what God is doing. Run to Jesus today and ask him to give you peace and joy in this season of your life. And ask God, what are you trying to shape in me? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to form in me as I walk through this season? Lord, I want my identity to be found in you. I look to you, not to my heritage, though there is goodness there, not to what I've accomplished for myself, though that is admirable and good for some of us. We've tried to do the best we can. Fantastic. But Lord, at the end of the day, my identity is found in you. It's found in being a forgiven child of God. And in that place, I become free to work and to live and to move and to have my being in you, Jesus. And I just pray today, Lord, over each one who's watching, that you would give each one a deep sense of their identity and of your provision and your protection and your shaping and forming them through the seasons of their lives. 
Lord, we are in need of you. We trust you today. We look to you. And I pray, Lord, over my friends that they would have a deep sense of your great love for them. And with the words you taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.